You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. Now, when we come to our passage of scripture here today, we are reminded that here in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, we've been talking about generosity in light of a certain time and place, a certain offering that took place with the church or for the church in Jerusalem. The Corinthians have been challenged to give. Um, Paul uses the Macedonian Christians as an example of what generosity looks like. And so that's sort of been the theme. But what's interesting is, is that those churches, Jerusalem or Macedonia or, or any of those other elements of those individuals aren't really mentioned in this. Paul just finishes with a strong word on what it truly means to be generous and what a, a life looks like that is giving thanks. And so what a perfect passage for us to wrap up this series, but also to prepare our hearts for this week of Thanksgiving. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, to open your copy of scripture to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to pick up in verse 8. So will you stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's word? And I want you to notice that the last few words from last week, if you have your Bible open, you can see this here. Uh, Verse 7, it ended in this way, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now notice how that just helps us build into this text and into kind of the end of Paul's argument as it relates to being generous, collecting an offering, helping those in need. Notice what it says here. It says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift that you've given us that truly is inexpressible. There are no words that adequately describe who you are and what you've given us. But today, Lord, we ask that you will open our minds and our hearts to more of who you are so that we can be the people you would have us be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to begin with a statement here. And, and as we think about what it means to give thanks, obviously, uh, the, the, the thought of thanksgiving isn't selfish. It's about giving something out. It's about pouring something out. Uh, we need to realize that. But here's the sentence. 
Proper Christian thinking leads to powerful Christian acting or action. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. This really is going to summarize where we're going today. When we think about thanksgiving, what we're doing there is, is we're meditating on who God is, all right? And, and really, who God is, is by itself. I mean, we think about his grandeur and his glory and all those things, but who he is, when we are giving thanks this week, we're giving thanks for God's attributes and then, again, some of those blessings that have come to us. But the second part of what I'm going to talk about here today is how thanksgiving, knowing who God is, meditating on his attributes, helps us to have what I'm going to term thanks living. So it's not just about coming to church and learning about who God is, but ultimately we come here to learn about God, to glorify him, to worship him, so that we can then live out our faith. So that we can be a people who are actively living the gospel. So thanksgiving and thanksgiving. We're going to think about who God is. And then we're going to think about how God works through us to do what could otherwise be termed ministry. So it's a very simple idea here today. And I think it flows naturally from this text. I think that this passage is an appetizer for our hearts and souls as we get ready for Thanksgiving week. This is a great way for us to to realize what Thanksgiving is about. And more than that, again, we don't want Thanksgiving to stay kind of intellectual property. We want it to turn into action. We want to see our faith on the move. And so that's why we're going to meditate on God's greatness first. Listen to this. Your Thanksgiving will grow in proportion to your knowledge of God. One of the purposes of us gathering here and one of the reasons why I love taking a passage of scripture and breaking it down for you is because I believe if you want to know more of God, you need to know more of his word. God has spoken through his word and revealed to us who he is. The God who is there is clearly presented to us in the scriptures. But clearly, if you're not opening up the scriptures, if you're not letting the scriptures tell you who God is, then you're not going to know him as you ought. And so one of the things to think about as we go into a week of Thanksgiving is the more you're familiar with God, the better you're going to be at giving thanks. That's a simple principle, but I think it could really help us grow as individuals. And when Thanksgiving grows, here's what's interesting also, you begin to be more Christ-like. So as we grow in our knowledge of God and we grow in our knowledge of Thanksgiving, what's interesting is, is that our lives begin to line up better with who Christ is. And, And I have to tell you, I've said this to you before, but you can never hear it too many times. The world doesn't need more of Jeremy. My wife would probably say amen, but anyway. And the world doesn't need more of you. And probably somebody would say amen. But the world needs more of Jesus in you and me. They they need to see us more filled with Christ every day. Now, I make light of, of, of you know, what, what I bring to the table or what you bring to the table, but what you bring does matter. Your gifts and your abilities, they do matter. But here's the thing. We have to make sure that our hearts are filled with Christ because you can have a lot of good things to give to the world, but if Jesus isn't the motivating factor in that, 
Like that song we just sang together as we cry out to Jesus, Jesus. We need to make sure that that we are living in him, that we are serving in the power of God. And so thanksgiving grows in our heart, yes. But when thanksgiving, our knowledge of who God is grows, as our thanksgiving grows, our Christ's likeness will increase. And so today that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk a little bit about God's goodness and that sets the foundation. His attributes set the table, as it were, for thanksgiving. And then when we have thanksgiving down pat, it's then that thanks living can transpire. So let's talk first about thanksgiving and let's meditate on God's goodness. I think this word meditate is important for us today. I believe that one of the things the church fails at often, now hear me out here, the church wants to get on to doing something before they've really learned how to be something. Now, now listen to me. I don't think that it's healthy for a church to not be actively involved in ministry and missions. I think our church is, is there's always room for improvement, but we have plenty going on. Wayne usually says during the announcements, there's a whole lot going on around here. And man, that's true. There's a lot of things that are going on, but we need to realize here that, that we need to, to not just be a people who are busy doing things. We need to be a people who are so connected with who God is that when we do things, we do them in the power of God. And the only way we can do things in the power of God is when we've meditated on who God is. Often you'll hear people talk about God and really what they're describing is an idealized form of who they think they are. And listen, you're not God. I'm not God. And there are many times when we're not reflecting him very well, but we can go to the scriptures and we can see who he is. From time to time, friends, our relationship with God seems to, to grow cold. The old writers and thinkers used to talk about our affections. Now, when we use the word affection, we, we, we think of that in some sappy, romantic sense. But in the old days, so to speak, the term affection was more deep and rich than that. It, it, it especially when it was applied to a theological context like this, what we're talking about here is it's, it's having that deep relationship with God. And I know that for my heart from time to time, um, those, those affections seem to wane. They te- seem to go down. The only way that we can fix that, right the ship, stay on course, what, whatever phraseology you need there. The only way we can fix that is when we start to, to, to falter in our faith, we have to go back to realizing who God is. Now that sounds so simple, but how many times a day are you investing time and energy through a thing called prayer, not just asking God to fix all your problems, but asking God to reveal to you who he is. Asking God to open the eyes of your heart when you're reading the words so that you can really get the full-orbed picture of who God is. Don't come to me and tell me that you're ready to go change the world for Jesus when you're not willing to meditate on who Jesus is. Don't talk about doing great things for God's glory when you haven't set or spent any time in the presence of God's glory. We have a culture that wants to do and act instead of really be in the presence of God. 
And I want to challenge you, if you really want to experience Thanksgiving, you need to experience God. And I believe when we do that, then we are able to truly be the church we're called to be and to be generous in all the right ways. When we fully connect to the body of Christ, when we are a part of a church that's preaching the gospel and helping people understand who God is, it is then that we can be fully invested in Christian generosity. We'll get it right. We will invest in the ministries that are right when we're spending time with God. And so that's the key, meditating, meditating. Beholding God is something we're all invited to do. Beholding God is something that we rarely do. And I would like for that to change in your heart and in mine, that we would be inspired to just dig in deeper and to know our God. It'll be awesome on Thanksgiving when you pray for your meal. If between now and then you've encountered a little bit more of the God of scripture, you need to know him. You need to know who he is. So let's take a look at the passage of scripture. Even the structure here of the passage helps us see who God is. If you look at verses eight through 10, there's a key word there in verse eight. And it's this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. Now, if you'll look there and go down to the bottom of our passage, the the last two verses, verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Notice in both of those passages, the key word is grace. So the first attribute of God that we need to consider together this morning is the grace of God. And the grace of God serves in this passage anyway as the bookends of the uh, expression or the explanation of who God is. When you think about God, most likely the first attribute that comes to your mind is from 1 John chapter 4, God is love. But the very next word that we come to the very next word that that should grip our hearts is that word grace. We need to see this and here the bookends of the passage show us the grace of God. What kind of grace? Well, look at verse eight. It's grace that abounds. It's not a grace that comes and goes or, or comes in limited quantities. No, it abounds. Verse 14 describes that grace as surpassing. Another word showing God's uh, generosity in that regard, which we'll get to that term in a moment, but just it's not a little bit of what God wants to give us. Grace is something he wants to pour out on us. Verse eight, the verb tense shows a kind of grace that never ceases. It's inexhaustible. You have in Christ the grace you need in every way. Now, let me, let me say this. When we think about grace, most of the time, I think our minds go to like an Ephesians 2 kind of grace, where we know that grace is what is required for us to be saved. We are saved by grace through faith. So hear this. One aspect of grace is God's grace extended salvation to you when you were lost. Grace is what you need to be saved from your sins. You are condemned in your sins, but because of God's grace, he extends to you the hope of forgiveness through the blood that he spilled on his cross. That's the kind of grace that most of us uh, meditate on. We're thankful for. When we say, thank you, Jesus, for your grace, many times we're thinking about grace in this way, that God saved us from our sins. But let me say this, let's add to it. God's grace sustains you through trials and temptations. So God's grace saves, but it also sustains. 
God has given us his grace so that we can make it through the difficulties of the Christian life. God's grace is something that doesn't just come to us on the day of conversion, but it is with us through our journey. Again, the words abounds, the words like surpassing help us to see that it is not just a static kind of grace. When we talk about God's grace, it's deep and rich, but also God's grace will bring you home to glory when your journey on earth is finished. So God's grace saves us, it sustains us, and helps us experience the joys of heaven. That is incredible grace. That is grace that doesn't have a one-dimensional aspect, but has a multi-dimensional aspect. This grace comes through Christ. Look at chapter 9, verse 13. We are told, By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Never forget that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that helps us understand the good news of of what God has done for us. But notice also here that there is an interesting connection here. Again, these words surpassing and abounds point us to this concept of generosity. Now, if you look there in, in verse nine, take a look there. It's an Old Testament quote, as it is written, he has distributed freely. Now, notice this. God is grace. We've already established that when we think about the attribute of God that Paul is, is bookending this passage with, grace is the first thing. But as you go through this passage, you realize that flowing from that grace, we see another attribute of God, and that is his generosity toward us. Distributing freely, the picture is God coming to us with an open hand. And he's saying to us, I'm going to, to, to give you what you need, not just to stay alive, but to really thrive in this world. You see, Paul picks up on this idea of the harvest. He's already touched on it. We touched on it last week. Look there in verse six. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Verse, nine, or verse seven of chapter nine says, when we give cheerfully, uh, basically what we're doing is we're just following God's lead. But what you need to see here is, is that the passage is, is, is pointing to um, yet planting and sowing, but also this idea of multiplication. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, here's the thing. When you understand God's generosity, you will begin to realize that God doesn't add to his children's lives. He multiplies in their lives. He has a way of doing exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could think or dream. That's what God does for his children. It says it right here in this passage. And we are told that God is the God who gives us not just what we need in the moment, Bread for food, if you'll see that passage, but also what we need for the future, seed for sowing. You see, God, God often, when we think about who he is and when we're praying to him, we're asking so often for God to give us the needs of the moment. But realize that the picture that scripture is painting here is that God doesn't just give us the bread, our daily bread. Thank the Lord he provides that. But he gives us the seeds we need for future harvest. God's generosity is so awesome that he is not only providing for your today, but also for your tomorrow. 
See, that's who God is. He thinks ahead. He thinks big. There's generosity here. Let me show you something else very interesting. It's in verse 10. It's easy to miss. It says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. Now I want you to look at that little phrase there, will supply. In the original language here, the phrase here speaks of an over-the-top sort of generosity, um, going abundantly above and beyond. Now, it's kind of funny what the word picture here is, okay? And it may not make a lot of sense to you, but it's, it's interesting. In the old days, in the, in the days of the, of the Greek and Roman world, if you were really rich and you threw a really good party, you could afford to pay a band. Now, today, when you go to, to a, even a dance or anything else, um, you know, they just play recorded music and that's the way it is. You know why? Because it's cheaper. Now, you know, we have a lot of musicians in our church and it takes a lot of time and practice and energy uh, to learn that skill. And if you bring a, a, a bunch of musicians together and, and you ask them to do that work and to utilize their talents, it could cost a lot of money to pay them to do those services. Now, that's what this word is talking about. It's interesting that God says, basically, in essence, that he's not just providing our daily bread. He's not just providing us seeds for future blessings, but he's also providing beauty for our lives. He provides us the song we need for our heart. God's generosity is more than just meeting your physical needs, but God created you with a soul that is beautiful, that needs to be fed with beautiful things. And so God is generous in every way. He wants you to grow, not just intellectually, not just in being able to go out and minister to people with your gifts, but he wants you to have a song. He loves you enough to pay for the band. That's what it says. A song. My family can tell you that I'm a terrible singer, but I still sing. So years ago, I learned that if I didn't want to be critiqued on my singing, um, I couldn't have, especially my beloved daughter around me. She's better than me when it comes to singing. No doubt about that. And she's not hypercritical. She just doesn't want to be tortured. So anyway, um, so I learned that singing needed to be something that I did kind of on my own. But what I would do is, back when I was a pastor in DeSoto, um, one of the best times I had to sing a song, to just have a song on my heart, was when I'd go home for lunch. I, I, I got in the habit of going home for lunch and, and just sitting at the kitchen table. And I would open up the pen. We have our dog kind of kenneled and she stays in her pen all day. But I would open it up so that she could come out. And you know what she would do? She'd stay right there in her pen. She's a wonderful dog. She's not that smart. She would stay right there. And I can tell you almost every day I would eat my lunch and I would be singing the song on my heart, whatever it was. And I'd, I would be singing. I remember one day, and I mean, I just remember this. It, it just, it sticks in my mind. I remember one day where I was going through a very difficult season of life and ministry. And I realized that as I was sitting at the table and I was eating my food, the dog was looking at me and the dog has this way of staring into my soul. And I'm like, do you need to go out? She didn't move. She just kept her eyes on me. And I don't know what made me think about it, but I realized that the dog was looking at me 
expecting a song. And that day I didn't have a song to sing. And, and what's interesting to me is, is that the, the spirit hit me so hard there because I was allowing the circumstances of life to rob me of one of the most precious gifts of all, which is the song of my heart. And I am reminded in this passage that yes, God is gracious and that graciousness extends to generosity, which is a tangible thing, yes, but it's also intangible in the sense that some of the best gifts God has bestowed upon you have no monetary value, but they sure make this thing called your heart beat. And God is generous to give us that as well. You need to be thankful to God because he's gracious and he's gracious enough to be generous. And that generosity is something much deeper than you can understand. He has given you a song of salvation. He's given you some beauty in life that's beyond quantification. It's something that only the heart understands. Oh, God is interested in keeping your body alive, yes. But he is also interested in your soul thriving. And I want to ask you, do you really feel that in your heart? Do you feel like because of your, your experience, encounter with God over the last few weeks or months or years, do you feel like you are spiritually thriving? Most people would say, not so much. And I want to say to you, if you would say, not so much, I don't feel like I've been thriving spiritually lately. One of the things you need to realize is we do not thrive spiritually when we are not experiencing God regularly. We need to experience who he is. We need to encounter him. And when we do, it's then that we see that God's hand has always been open. He distributes freely. We can, in the words of John 10, 10, experience life and more abundantly. I don't want to switch gears here, but John 10, 10 is one of those verses, life verses for me, because let me say this, there are many people who have biological life. They are literally alive in a biological sense, but they are spiritually as dead as can be. And John 10, 10 is not talking about biological life. It's talking about the abundant life that we can only have in Christ. The church needs to be more than a pulse It needs to be more than biological life. The church must be abundant life. And we will not be abundant life until we understand the abundance of his attributes. The abundance of who he is. Grace, generosity. And then the third thing in terms of attributes is not a thing as much as it is a person. I think that this passage speaks in verse 15. If you'll notice, it speaks of thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We go back to verse 13 and we find out what that is. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or to put it most simply, the inexpressible gift is Jesus. When we think about the attributes of God, we cannot fully understand who God is apart from the revelation of God in Christ. 
It is in Jesus, his life recorded in the gospels that we see the answer to the question, what if God dwelt among us? What would it look like if God were present? Well, look to the gospels, read the letters in red, read the stories of Jesus and what he did. And there you see God in action. If you want to know God, know Christ. He is the inexpressible gift. Grace has been distributed freely in the person of Jesus Christ. So if we were to ask the question, what is the heart of thanksgiving? What is the heart of the attributes of God? Jesus. Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. Over the years, thanksgiving has turned into a pretty well-accepted secular holiday. You don't have to be a church person to do Thanksgiving. Um, Christmas is becoming more of a, a, a recognizable Christian holiday to the point where people who are not Christians are being kind of ugly about it. And we could talk about that if you want to, but that's not my purpose. You know, some that people talk about the war against Christmas, and I'm sure there's a war against Thanksgiving too. I'm sure uh, the people who know much more than we do can find a reason to hate on Thanksgiving too. In fact, I know they are. They, they found their, their angles, but most people are still okay with Thanksgiving, even if they don't really believe in what I've been preaching to you and talking to you about this morning. I find that incredible, if not incredulous. Now, when we say that we're giving thanks, a key component of giving thanks is to have someone to give thanks to. If I were to go in my office right now, I have a desk drawer that I can pull out and I have thank you cards in that, in that drawer and I, I pull them out from time to time and I write a handwritten thank you note and always, without exception, I put someone's name on it. I am thankful too. I do not do this. I do not write a, a, a very detailed thank you note, put it in that wonderful stationery that I have, seal it up, put no addressee on it, but I go out and walk out my door and go, universe, I am thankful. And then it just goes wherever it goes. But do you realize at Thanksgiving, there will be many people who do not believe in God and they're going to say they're giving thanks and they're doing the same thing. They're saying thank you to the universe. And guess what? The universe doesn't care. The universe is a fallen universe that really doesn't care about you. From the universe's perspective, if you want to go this route, if you want to go the purely materialistic route, you are nothing but chemicals glued together by some unknown power and you just exist and you'll cease to exist and the universe doesn't care. But the God I've been preaching to you cares and he has a name. And I want you, when you give thanks you give thanks to the God who gave us Christ, who loves you, who cares for you, who is gracious enough to save you, sustain you, give you the hope of eternal life. Generous, not just in providing your daily bread, but generous in the sense of giving you seeds to plant for future harvest. And what's more, he's generous to give you his song. And the ultimate expression of that song is Christ himself. That's worthy of thanksgiving. So now let's talk about thanksgiving. We have talked about thanksgiving, but now we need to meditate on thanksgiving with an L there. 
a meditation here on our service to God's kingdom. Quickly, let's think about this. Paul is really good in his letters. Usually there's a turning point, but almost every one of his letters begins with a very robust theological discussion telling us who God is. And usually at some point in the letter, there is a twist and a turn where we go from talking about who God is to how we apply that truth in ministry. Paul was always telling us who God is and then he was expressing to us how we then live. How shall we live now that we know this? So today, most specifically is, we've been talking about the attributes of God, uh, his grace, his generosity, and the coming of, of his son Jesus, okay? So now we ask the question, how do we live out that truth? How do we become the people that God wants us to be? Because grace and generosity and, of course, Christ, this is not abstraction. This is literal truth. Verse 8, all sufficiency in all things at all times so that you may abound in every good work. Now, God's grace is all sufficient. He'll give you all that you need in all times. And notice that the application is, is so that you can abound in every good work. That what you are doing for the kingdom is beautiful and glorious. The word sufficiency here. Paul does borrow it from Greek philosophy, the Stoics. The Stoics in particular, in their view, they believe that the most happy man or woman would be the self-sufficient person. The person who was able to find happiness within their heart and not need the happiness that's gleaned from someone else. So Stoics kind of get that, that, that rap, so to speak. They, they, they sort of get pointed at as being people who really didn't care about the world around them. And that's kind of true because they realize that if you give your heart to someone else, they could hurt you. And so for them, the only way to avoid that was to just not have to have anybody else in your life that was really dictating what made you happy. Well, that sounds great philosophically, but I'm going to tell you, it's, it's hard to experience love and joy in this life when all you have is sufficiency in yourself. One of the things that I sense is happening, one of the, one of the uh, uh, avenues, so to speak, that our culture is taking is this sort of stoic approach where we're only going to define happiness based on what, what's sufficient for me. So I begin to redefine all the terms. I begin to create a new reality. And all that matters is, is that in the end, I like it. Now, you know, if I just go about my business, that's fine. But if what I like in some way infringes upon what you like, well, then what, what I want is more important than what you want. It's not a livable lifestyle. And I fear that we are heading towards societal chaos because everybody wants their own way to quote the book of Judges to do what is right in their own eyes. And when you do that, the fabric of society begins to tear. What's the solution? I've just given you the problem. Here's the solution. The only solution, the only antidote to self-sufficiency is being sufficient in Christ. This is the game changer. Listen to me, each and every one of you. What will turn this culture in the direction of the kingdom is when people like you and me, like us, as the people of God, the church of God, when we are not going to go down the route of what's good for me, what is sufficient for the needs of my heart, but I will say, and you will say, that Christ is all I need, that my sufficiency is in him. And when my sufficiency is in him, 
then we can and I can. We, we, we have all that we need and we will be able to do all that needs to be done and we will do it for others. When Christ is our all, we will worship as we should and we will serve other people and our own needs will come a very distant third place. And the culture is suffering and dying today, its soul is anyway, because we're trying to put me first in a universe where God is supposed to be first, others are supposed to be second, and I am supposed to be third. Thanks living gets this in the right order where we are able to truly do every good work because we are more concerned about Christ and his people than getting what we want. Christian giving will never leave you lacking. It will, it will always fill you in unexpected ways. That's the beauty of God. He gives us a harvest of righteousness. Notice, the, notice what it says here. It says literally um, that, that you will have a harvest of your righteousness. Now, I think that's interesting. And I think it's also somewhat dangerous because some people will take a passage like this and begin to think that, that really all, again, it's about is, is that it's about me feeling good about myself. So much of, of what we, we think about uh, spiritually and psychologically today is about me feeling good. Now, I'm not saying that God wants you to feel bad. But when your main goal is to feel good, then there's no way that you're really worshiping God as you ought to. You've made your feelings the idol. But God wants to give you a harvest of your righteousness. And let me tell you what that means. I believe that God's word is saying here that God does want to use you. He has invited us to do the work in the fields. He says the, the fields are ripe for the harvest. I just need some workers. He's inviting us. We can plant seeds through discipleship. We can come here and, and worship. We can come here and, and learn in a small group. All of those things are so that we can grow, but that we can take that growth and use it in a way in the fields of ministry so that there can be harvests of righteousness. God wants to use you in this way. The harvest in ancient times was a time of unspeakable joy. When they brought in the harvest, it meant that they were going to live another year. Today, let's say here in Missouri, let's say that we had a drought and farmers lost their crops. Cows were having to be sold off because the fields could no longer uh, provide the necessary uh, sustenance. Most likely, Somewhere else in the continental United States, there would be other farmers whose, whose crops took and there would be other people whose cows were able to be fed and we would have food. But in the ancient world, without that kind of distribution, you didn't have trucks going from one end of the country to the other. I mean, the lettuce you have for lunch probably came from California today, okay? That's not the world of the ancient world. So if your crops didn't come in at harvest, your family was going to suffer if not die. That's why these harvest festivals that now we just think it's a, it's a fun thing to go and, and, and go to a little community gathering and have fun. But the, in the olden days, they had festivals because that meant they were going to stay alive. Okay, that's what those were initially established for. So when, when Paul is talking about the harvest here, you and I go, yeah, whatever. But the original readers would have understood that he's talking about the difference between life and death. And I'll tell you, you don't come to church most days thinking that what you're going to hear is a difference between life and death. But I assure you it is. The food you need for your soul every Sunday and quite frankly, every day, it is a life or death matter. We've just lost sight of that. 
We've lost sight of of what the stakes are, that our hearts and souls are eternal, that every day we have an opportunity to draw closer unto God or to go further away from him. And thanks living is the process whereby we say, no, God, we're going to fight today to know more of you and to live more for you. You are to be investing in eternal lives. But too often today, Christianity has been hijacked. I wish I had time to go into this, but in chapter 9, verse 11, there is a verse here that I think has been perverted by the prosperity gospel preachers in our land and in other lands. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. I think some people take verses like that and say, well, if you're being faithful to God, that means you're going to be um, happy and wealthy and have all those material blessings, you know, flying around on your private jets and all those kinds of things that some, believe it or not, in the prosperity gospel say is their, their right and privilege. Now, I'm not going to get into that, but let me just say this. Do not think for a moment that the blessings that God has given you is so that you can live this lavish lifestyle to serve your self-interest. I don't get that vibe here. I don't want you to think that I do, but I want to warn you about it because there are false teachers out there. There are wolves. 400 years ago, a man preaching to his congregation in London said this. Thomas Brooks said, Prosperity has been a stumbling block at which millions have stumbled and fallen and broke the neck of their souls forever. What he's warning us is, is that if we think that because we've made some money or we've been prosperous in some way, that somehow that shows us that we have God's favor, we need to realize that it may be something that the devil's using in our lives to keep us from God. Sometimes our our money becomes our albatross. I'm going to read this one more sentence because Thomas Brooks didn't mind laying it down pretty serious. He said this, he said, the snow may cover a dung hill, so doth prosperity cover many a rotten heart. Listen, I pray that God has blessed you. But if those blessings remain just for you and yours, I fear that what you've done is taken a beautiful blessing and made it something odious unto the, unto the Lord. We need to make sure that God and others are, quite frankly, the recipients of the blessings that we've been given. Enrichment is not about personal enrichment here, but verse 12 tells us it supplies the needs of the saints. Notice it also says here that generous living is a contribution for them and all the others. Notice how the blessings are not flowing in as much as they're flowing out to others. God certainly does bless us. And I know this church has been blessed. But in scripture, those who are blessed are always tasked to be a blessing. Give you two quick examples. Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 verse 2. He is told that he is, he's been, been given the blessings that he's received so that he can be a blessing to the nations. On a larger scale, in Genesis 22, 18, we see God saying basically the same thing to Israel, saying that you are going to be a blessing to the nations. Thanksgiving, understanding who God is, leads to thanks living, which helps us to live for others, to have an overflow of thanksgiving to God, yes, but, but a thanksgiving that, that goes to our neighbors as well. Verse 12, notice what it says. It begins by saying, for the ministry of this service. The word ministry 
in the original language here is basically what it looks like. It's just physical, practical kind of work. But I want you to see that word service. Do you see it there in verse 12? That word is also translated worship. So think of it this way. We are living out thanks living when our worship is our ministry and our ministry is our worship. Where, where we're no longer distinguishing between the two. That worship and ministry are fused together by the Holy Spirit. And we live lives of worship, which as Tori said earlier, uh, cause us to be givers. That, that, that even our giving becomes an act of worship. And our service is an act of worship. Our ministry, all that we do is lived out for God. Thanksgiving. Thanks living. How much do you know the God who saved you? And how is that knowledge impacting the way you live? Sadly, there are a lot of people who say they know God and aren't really living for him. And there are others that are living in a way that's very moral and they seem to be living good, quote unquote, Christian lives, but they don't know God. You got to have both. You can't just say, I, I want to know God and leave it there. No, if you know God, you'll serve him and his people. And you can't say, well, I'm just going to do good deeds because that completely negates the reality that there's a God of the universe to whom you need to be thankful. And he has spoken. He has revealed who he is and he is mighty. Some of us this morning need, quite frankly, to know God unto salvation because Thanksgiving this week is impossible apart from the salvation that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. Until you receive Christ as your savior, you are at Thanksgiving time anyway, you're writing a thank you card to the universe. You're throwing it out in the wind, but it's not connecting to anyone. What I'd like for you to do is have it connect. I'm thinking about many of us in this room that I know uh, in this church, we have abundant, abundantly generous people that have learned these lessons over the years, uh, far before, long before I ever preached a sermon like this. But we do need to remember that we have opportunities to be generous. We have Lottie Moon coming up. Our church goal is $90,000. We would like to raise 100000 because that goes directly to the International Mission Board and, and, and helps missionaries around the world, many of whom are in our church either retired or, or no longer serving in the IMB. But many people in our church have directly uh, benefited in ministry because of that gift. We've also talked about the generosity of, of redoing this room and other things like that. That's an opportunity. It's one not the only, but an opportunity to be generous. A couple weeks ago, I was in a meeting with the president of the Missouri Baptist, or actually the Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. Dr. Allen is uh, really tall. He always dresses really sharp and he's really, really smart. And he was having a conversation with PhD students and I, I was able to sit in on the, on the meeting. They were all in, uh, they were there during, while I was preaching. So that, that, no stress there. Not only was I preaching at a seminary, but every single stinking PhD student at Midwestern happened to be in the room. So I'm sure I was critiqued thoroughly. But after the whole thing, we, we sat down and I was listening to Dr. Allen talk. And he said this, he was talking to leaders and he said, we need to start living our lives, not in our inbox, but our outbox. 
Now, what he was talking about is taking control of our lives to say, okay, I'm not just going to be the person who responds to what's going on in the world, but I'm going to be the one sending the emails and setting the agenda. That's what leaders are supposed to do. I thought that was a a really powerful kind of modern way of thinking about taking the initiative. But I want to take this analogy one step further. I think Christianity Many churches die because we are living in the inbox. We come to church expecting the email from God that's going to help us, you know, be that person that's happy and better. But I'm going to tell you, we already have all that we need in the scriptures. You don't need to wait around for another message. You have the gift of life in the word of God. At some point, you're going to have to start writing the emails that go out. You're going to have to start living your life in the outbox and determining what you're going to do for the one who died on the cross for your sins. We can give thanks all we want on Thursday when we're having dinner with our families. But I'm telling you, if you really know who this God is, it's time to start living for him. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.